It is a great delight and privilege to be able to open God's Word with you again this evening. Um, I tell Charlotte this many times. It's a great comfort to stand before you, my church family, knowing this one truth, that you're for me and not against me. You're here and you want to hear God speak through his lowly servant that I am. So it's a great comfort to know that you pray for me and that you hunger to hear from God this evening. So may he bless our time as we look at 2 Timothy, and we'll be in chapter 2, specifically verses 20 down to 26. But before we jump into these verses, I want you to think about personal holiness. If I was to ask you, what's that make you, what pops into your head when you think about personal holiness or godliness within the Christian life? Is it something that maybe is is scary for you, or is it something that you don't really think about, or is it something that brings joy and you delight in seeking and striving after? And I ask that question because I think it'd be fair to say that in evangelicalism today, we have a skewed view and understanding of the doctrine of holiness and godliness in the Christian life. We normally have two camps on either end of the spectrum. We have the, the small l legalists, and I, I call them a small l legalist because I think it comes from an ignorance, um, maybe an immaturity, and then a lack of biblical teaching. They don't have this thorough, thought-out doctrine, and that's why they're thinking the way they're thinking. It comes more from an ignorance. And these small l legalists make God's commandments burdensome. They make it seem like it's unattainable because they set it at such a high level and they put the pressure on that we have to earn God's favor through our obedience. And then they fall into the trap of this unending introspection that then brings about a crippling effect which leads to inactivity and a lack of holiness. You flip over the side of the coin and you've got the small a antinomism. These are people who maybe have been hurt from legalistic thinking and settings, or they may have a very tender conscience towards their own sins. And they believe that personal holiness is so unattainable for them, therefore they stop trying altogether. They may say, well, I can, act- I can never actually trust God enough, so I'm not going to even try anyways. Sure, Jesus has lived the perfect life on my behalf. And that last statement is a truth, but there's a, it's a half-truth. They haven't got the whole picture. Yes, Christ has lived a perfect life, but in him we have the power to strive for holiness. And so they also end up in the pitfall of inactivity and a lack of per- personal holiness. And so maybe a question arises within your mind thinking, well, is it actually attainable to have personal holiness? Is this something that is really necessary and useful in the Christian life? And with that question in our minds, we come to our passage, for Paul answers that very question for us. And the purpose behind his writing these verses is that I want to see that he wants us to desire to be holy, that we would be useful. 
Paul wants us to desire to be holy that we would be useful. And we'll break up the passage this evening into two points. The first one will be verses 20 and 21, and we'll have the heading, Why Should We Desire to Be Holy? And the second point is verses 22 and 26, What is it to be holy? What is it to be holy? Though, as we come to these verses, it's, it's good to remind ourselves that this is a letter that we're reading. And so these verses aren't taken in isolation from what has come beforehand. So we need to see that verse 20 is linked with verse 19, and specifically that last clause. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And so when we come to verse 20, we are to be aware that Paul is expanding on this truth by telling us that Christians should depart, to, should desire to depart from iniquity, and then what it looks like to live a life that is separate from iniquity. And that's the context in which we come into our first point, why we should desire to be holy. And we'll read verse 20 together, so please, if you don't have your Bible, get it back out, and we'll just walk through the text together and see what God is communicating to us through Paul in this letter. So verse 20 reads, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. So we see that Paul is building this picture, this metaphor of a great house, and we have these two types of vessels, gold and silver, which are used for honorable use, wood and clay, which are used for dishonorable use. But we have to go past that and ask, what is Paul getting at with this metaphor? What's the meaning? Why is he now using this metaphor flowing out of verse 19? For surely he's not just telling us that we all have that nice set of cutlery that we bring out when guests over, and we have that all right set of cutlery that we kind of use when no one's about. No, we are to see that Paul has, there's there's a a spiritual dimension behind his metaphor linked to the context of 2 Timothy. We're to see that the great house represents the local church. And we're to see that the gold and silver vessels and the wood and clay vessels represent two groups of people that are found within the local church. And specifically, he's thinking about um, in leadership and teachers and people who are preaching when he talks about these two groups. And these two groups of people are those who are useful and are honorable to the Lord within the local church, and then those are those who are useless and dishonorable within the local church. And we should hopefully maybe make the connection, or I want us to make the connection, to verse 17, where Paul especially calls out these two false teachers and they'll butcher the name, so please just bear with me. So he, he specifically points out Hermogenes and Philetus uh, as being two individuals within the local church who are bringing dishonor to God by their irreverent babble that leads to ungodliness. So they are dishonorably doing things in the name of God which leads to this ungodliness. And Paul even says, more and more ungodliness. 
But then we're also to see that there are those honorable vessels like Timothy and other appointed elders within the church who are useful and honoring to God within the church. Why? We'll cast your eyes down to 15. They rightly handle the word of God. They rightly handle the word of God. And then we do see Paul go on in verse 21 to elaborate what fundamentally distinguishes these two types of vessels. And so cast your eyes down to verse 21 and read along with me. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the mass of the house, ready for every good work. What is it then that distinguishes these two types of vessels? It is being cleansed. It is holiness. The vessels that are used for honorable use are the ones that have cleansed themselves from all unrighteousness, from things that are dishonorable. They are ones that are set apart. They are ones that are holy. They are people who separate, them things, separate themselves from things that would defile them. And this, therefore, enables them to be useful to the master of the house, who is God. Meaning that these vessels who are holy glorify God by serving him in completing every good work that he has prepared beforehand for them. Think of that language from Ephesians 2 and 10. The Lord has prepared good works for us. So we are to see that the more holy we are, the more useful we are to God. And I kind of want to just step back and kind of apply this. Like, how does this land on us? Like, what are two truths that we can be instructed from verses 21 uh, and 20? And the first is a sobering truth. I want us to see from these verses that we are to recognize that there will be true believers and false believers, vessels of gold and silver, vessels of wood and clay within the local church. And we see this in the context of Paul with Hermogenes and Philetus. But chapter 3 also instructs us and lets us know that this isn't a new truth. This has always been true. Even in the time of the Old Testament, in chapter 3, we see in verse 8 of Janus and Jambres opposing Moses to show themselves to be false believers. And so, yes, this is a sobering truth. But I'm not highlighting it to kind of fearmonger or, or scare you, but rather I'm highlighting it to seek to um, prepare you and make you aware, aware of the sad reality of what happens in a local church. If you're in a local church long enough, you will see people apostatize and turn back to the world. They're turned back to the vomit like the dogs, as First Peter says. But again, if we remember verse 19, this fundamental building block, what does it say? It says, the Lord knows who are his, and those who are his can never be snatched out of his hands. All who take refuge in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They cannot be moved. But there will be ones in the church who go out from us who are never truly of us. 
And then the second point of application, I just want us to see a call, a call from verse 21 to cleanse yourself from all that is dishonorable. Let us be people, a great thick, who desire to be holy. It's a good thing to desire to be holy. We should actively be seeking to cleanse ourselves from all that is dishonorable. We'll unpack what that looks like in our second point. But from this verse, I just want to see that this call is a good thing. God's commandments and personal holiness is not meant to be a burdensome thing. Remember back to the Sunday morning in Psalm 119. It says, Psalm 119, verses 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Loving and delighting yourself in the things of God bring joy and flourishing in the Christian life. Therefore, let us be holy that we may be useful to God. So then this to close off the first point. Why should we desire to be holy? We should desire to be holy that we would be useful to God. And then the natural question that rises out of first, uh, the first point is, what does it mean to be holy? What does it look like to desire to be holy? And, where that, and that's where Paul goes in verses 22 and 26. And so our second point is what it is to be holy. And this section splits into two subsections. Verses 22 and 23, where Paul continues to look at what it means for Timothy and for us to cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable. And then secondly, in verses 24 and 26, we see Paul change his imagery to thinking about how holiness is linked to being the Lord's servant. But again, I think it's just helpful to situate ourselves of what has came before in Second Timothy, especially when we enter in their very imperative, heavy section where we're being called to do things, to, to cleanse ourselves of unrighteousness. And I want us to remember that the call to be holy is not something we do dependent on ourselves, but rather it flows out of our being united to Jesus. And that's what we see in chapter 2, verse 1, where it tells us we pursue holiness and obedience, not in our own strength, but rather in the strength of Jesus and his grace. I do like Colossians 2 and 29. It kind of helpfully helps us see what it means that we are the ones who are actively striving while it's the one God is actively working in us. Paul says it this way. He says, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is called to strive with his might while God empowers him with all his energy. And therefore, we are called to pursue holiness with all our might as Jesus strengthens us with all his grace. When pursuing the fruit, let us not forget the root that is Jesus, for we can do nothing apart from him and the Spirit working within our lives. So let's read verse 22 together. This first subsection, verse 22 and 23, it says, 
So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In this verse, we see two types of commandments. We see the negative flee and the the positive pursue. Or maybe it's helpful to have this imagery in your head that the negative means that Timothy is meant to run away from youthful passions and the positive, he is meant to run towards righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And this helps instruct us of the two facets that, are, that we're called to pursue in sanctification, the, the, the desiring to be personally holy. The negative facet, putting to death sin in our life, So mortification, the fancy word, and then the positive facet, putting on Christ, vivification. And we need these two facets in sanctification to have a full-orbed personal holiness and flourishing in the Christian life. And with that said, let's look then at our negative command. First, flee from youthful passions. What's the idea behind youthful passions in the context of 2 Timothy? It's not lust and sexual immorality, though we are called to put that to death explicitly in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. But rather in the context of 2 Timothy, Paul is talking about the youthful temperament that is prone to being argumentative, and struggles to be patient and gentle in controversy and discourse. Maybe a helpful paraphrase is to think about youthful passions is headstrong passions of youth. And this makes sense in the context of there, for we've always seen um, Paul warning against irreverent babble that leads to ungodliness in verse 16. And then in verse 23, if you read it, you see him saying, having nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And so we can hear Paul saying to Timothy and to us that we are to flee from youthful passions, that if we want to be holy, we are to flee from this temperament that is prone to arguments, that is prone to be harsh with people, that is prone to be quick to speak and slow to listen, that loves disorder, that delights in empty controversies. Flee from such vices, for they just bring dishonor and ungodliness, rather pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, that you may be holy and useful to God, which then flows us in to look at the positive commands. And I want us to hear the urgency behind Paul's voice here. It's not a kind of stroll around the park on a Sunday after a big feed. Paul wants you to be urgent, to desire after. Stop puts it this way. He says, when we talk about pursuing, we could say he wants you to be in hot pursuit or he wants us to be chasing down these virtues. Timothy and all believers are meant to pursue righteousness. Though this is not the imputed righteousness that is given to us in Christ, 
but rather the right living that flows out of our union with Christ. Think about Romans 6 when it says, sin no longer has dominion over you. Why? Because you've been united to Christ and you've been buried with him in his baptism and the old self's been left behind. You've been risen up into newness of life. And he says, therefore, walk in the newness of life. Do not live under the dominion of sin. Live in the reality of your new identity that you have been liberated. You have been freed. Therefore, use your body, your instruments, all that you have for the glory of God. And then we're also to pursue faith. And it's not the idea of the instrumental faith that unites us to Christ, but it's the ongoing faithfulness and believing in the promises of God in the Christian life. And then nextly, we see that we're to pursue love. And it's primarily not a love towards God, that, that is important, but it's this horizontal love towards brothers and sisters within the church, that there may be unity. But it even expands out past this, the brotherly love that you have for your brothers and sisters in the, the church. You're meant to love even those who persecute you. As Jesus says, we are to love our enemies. This is a distinctly Christian love, even loving those who persecute you. And it just hits different when you recognize that Paul isn't writing this letter from an ivory tower saying, love those who persecute you. He is writing this from a prison cell. But yet he still says, God's ways are better than man's ways. God's word has not failed. It is better to love your enemy than sin against them. That's madness. Following the, the commandments of God really does fill you with joy. God's ways really are the most glorious way, the most best way to have a flourishing life. Though it may not look like that to the world, because no one's going to say sitting in a prison in the first century is the most glorious way to live, but Paul says you're wrong. For if you have Christ, you have everything. You, if you delight yourself so much in the Lord, like the psalmist says, he will give you the desires of your heart. You don't long for the ivory tower. You long for communion with the Lord. And flowing out of that, you will live for the Lord. And then fourthly, he says, pursue peace. For blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We are not meant to be people looking for a, a fight. We're not meant to be angry little people in our wee huts. We are meant to be people who are joyful and have this peace that surpasses on their standing, this peace that comes from knowing the Lord and his absolute in-controlness. We should desire to be people bearing that fruit of the Spirit, pursuing peaceableness with all people. And then the question is, where where are we to pursue these vices and virtues? Where are we to fight against these sins and pursue these fruits of the Spirit? It comes in the second half of verse 23 with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, meaning that sanctification are growing in holiness and godliness primarily happens within the context of the local 
church. We need one another to grow in holiness. The Christian walk is not meant to be walked alone. An old Reformed Presbyterian minister kind of helpfully illustrated to me once. He said, think about coals in a fire. They're red hot together, but if you take one out and set it to the side by itself, what happens? It becomes cold and it's useless. And that is true for us as believers. God has ordained it that the means by which we will grow and be sustained is through being in a local church, doing exactly what we're doing right now, feeding upon the ordinary means of grace that God has ordained. We have read God's word. We have sang God's word. Now we're hearing God's word preached. That is how we grow. And then we have fellowship after and we encourage one another. And even when you're singing, what does it say in Colossians and Ephesians? You're encouraging one another. And then even Hebrews has this glorious passage when it's talking about you want to have full assurance. You want to be assured. What's it say? It says, do not forsake the local gathering that you may encourage one another. If you want assurance, if you want to be strong in the faith, the local church is the place to be. And we shouldn't be surprised because it's the way that God has ordained things. God's ways are better than man's ways. And so after just looking at those negative and positives, I want to step back from these verses and just slow down again and think about one way that this can be applied to us. A truth and a call at the same time. And it's this truth that in sanctification, we are called to flee sin and pursue righteousness. We are called both to run from sin and run to righteousness. And I want us as great thick to settle it in our minds that we are going to actively put to death sin in our lives by the power of the Spirit. That we will not become friendly with our sins, but rather we will pray that sin will become more and more bitter to us. And then on the other side of the same coin, we must settle it in our minds that we will actively seek to put on Christ each day by delighting in communing with the Holy Spirit so that the fruit of the Spirit would become sweet to us and increase in our lives. And we must desire to do this, not for our own glory, but that God would be glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. We do this for the glory of God, not ourselves. But our joy and the glory of God is not detached. As we seek to have this joyful obedience, we seek to glorify God. It's glorious when you recognize that. It says, this, it's a wee tangent, but it says in John 14 or 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then what does it say at the end? It says, I have told you these things that you may be filled, fulfilled in joy. Keeping God's commandments fills us with joy. We are to delight in the Lord. And so just continuing 
to look at what it is to be holy, we're going to see in verses 24 and 26, Paul shift his imagery from being honorable vessels to being a servant of the Lord. I'm going to just go read 24, verses 24 down to 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Again, we see Paul giving these negative and positive commands, calling Timothy to run from quarrelsomeness and run to kindness and teaching and patience and gentleness while correcting opponents. And then he adds this truth that enables Timothy to pursue these virtues. And that truth is that God is sovereign. He is the one that brings the growth in your ministry. He is the one that grants repentance and knowledge that leads to freedom in Christ. And this liberates Timothy from seeking into the ways of the world, but he stays in the lane of God's glorious commandments, trusting that this is the means by which he will bring fruit. And you may have heard Steve quote Andrew Fuller saying this, but I think this, this week quote helpfully sums up this section and also the verses that we've been looking at. Andrew Fuller says this, eminent holiness in a minister is usually attended with eminent usefulness. So what am I getting there? It's saying holiness and usefulness ordinarily go together. That is the Lord's design, that his servants would be holy and the Lord would bless their ministry. Whether that that means you are a pastor, but even in the workplace, you are called to be holy and the Lord will bless you as you interact with your work colleagues. Or maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. Likewise, you're called to be holy that you may be useful. It, this truth transcends just the, the office of elder and deacon. It's a call for all believers to be holy that they may be useful. And so with that, now let's just walk through the negative and positive commands briefly. The first negative we see is that Timothy must not be quarrelsome. And this helps link us back to verse 23 and all that has come before. And it shows us that Paul is, is still talking and elaborating from verse 19, but he's just switched his imagery. And so Timothy is in this context as a servant of the Lord to use his words wisely and not be like the false teachers that talk a little guff that leads to ungodliness. Rather, his words, as he correctly handles the word of God, will lead to godliness and prosperity and unity within the local church. As preparing at Proverbs 12 and 18, I thought helpfully illustrates this point. It says, there is one whose rash words are like, a sword, like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. We're meant to have this imagery of those 
dishonorable, those false teachers who have irreverent babble being like a fool with a sword, this slashing and bringing chaos within the place. And those who are of honorable use, those appointed elders who correctly use the word of God, they are to be seen as the tongue of the wise that brings healing and peace and unity within the church. And then we will turn and we see the positive commands of what Timothy is also called to pursue. He is first meant to be kind, not harsh. Then he is meant to be able to teach, specifically refuting the false teachers. And then he's meant to patiently endure and correct his opponents with gentleness. And I think, sadly, these two last virtues are passed over too quickly when it comes to Christian evangelism or ministry. Too often Christians enjoy the act of debating more than the actual evangelizing to the lost. And therefore they slip into the ways of the world and they'll use any means possible to win the arguments. Oh, that we would rather heed the words of Paul more seriously, that we would be seen as fools for the gospel, that we would rather see souls saved than arguments won. And this changes our posture in those conversations. We will be slow to speak. We will be gentle. Why? Because we recognize that not even in our forcefulness or articulation, can we change their hearts? It must be a work of God through his faithful proclamation of the gospel. We want to desire to be like the servant of the Lord. We want to have a, a, a temperament that reflects Christ. But what does it say in Matthew 11? What is Christ's heart like? It is gentle and lowly. May we, by the grace of God, be marked of this temperament of gentleness and humility, that the aroma of Christ would flow from us, and that we would glorify God, yes, in the act of evangelizing, but even in the act that we, the way that we do it would be in coherence with the gospel message. It would be gracious and kind. It wouldn't be this kind of harshness and shoving it down people's throats. May we take after Christ, who was this gentle and lowly of heart, calling the weary to come to him to find rest. Yes, being bold against the hypocrites, but never sinning in unrighteous anger or harshness. And so, yeah, let's just remember those two points. May we be patient and gentle for they are glorious as they work out in believers. And now then, we'll turn and see the truth that underpins Paul's argument or reasoning why Timothy should desire to pursue these virtues. What enables people to be kind to those who mock them, to patiently endure evil, to correct opponents with gentleness and respect when they are being shown none themselves. It is this. It's the realization that you were once like them, dead in our sins and trespasses, rebels against God, until the Lord graciously 
opened our eyes. And that's what we see. We see that God is the one that opens the eyes, that makes the believer alive in Christ. And we see that in the second half of verse 25 and 26. Let's just read that together again. It says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In these verses, we see two truths. Firstly, God is sovereign over salvation. He is the one that grants repentance and gives understanding, gives knowledge that leads to freedom in Christ. And secondly, it is the devil that holds captive the sinner because of his bondage to sin and death. But how then does this truth change the way Timothy and we go about ministry and evangelism? Well, it reminds us that the Lord gives the growth. It doesn't matter how intellectually right and satisfying your arguments are or how forceful and brutish we are with people. They will not see the glory and the beauty of God unless he grants illumination that leads to liberation. Therefore, heed the call to be desired to be holy, that you may be useful. Don't fall into the ways of the world, but follow God's ways, for they are better. He has ordained it that we would be holy, and therefore we would be use- useful. And as we think about this truth, I think Second Corinthians uh, chapter 4 and verses 4 and 6 beautifully illustrate this truth for us. It kind of opens up the curtain a wee bit more and shows us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, keeping them from seeing the glory of God. And then we see that just as the Lord said, let there be light in creation, he likewise does the same in salvation for the individual believer and says, let there be light and the Holy Spirit shines in with this creational light, takes the blinders off so that they can behold the glory and beauty of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is only by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we behold the beauty and glory of Jesus. And if you've seen the Son, you have seen the Father. Salvation is of the Lord's. Let us therefore be gracious and kind and slow to speak and slow to anger as we evangelize. Let us lean on the fruits of the Spirit. Let's lean on God's way. Let us faithfully to sow that seed knowing that He brings the growth. And so just to finish, I want to have three brief points of application. We'll look at two glorious truths and one warning The first glorious truth is that God gives the growth, not us. He is the one that brings about illumination that leads to liberation. And what a helpful and comforting truth as we think about bounce next week. We are not called to save those kids, but rather we are called to be holy sowers of the seed, knowing that God is the one who shines creational light into the little hearts that they may see his glory and beauty in the person of Christ. Therefore, know nothing but Christ crucified. 
Reflect him in your character. And maybe you're not doing bounce next week, but that truth applies in the workplace. Maybe that conversation you've had with a work colleague for the hundredth time, and it seems like it's bouncing off them. Continue in seeking godliness and patience, knowing that it is God who shines creational light. Or maybe it's a family member that you've known for years, and again, it seems like it's bouncing off. Take heart. The Lord is the one that gives growth. He uses our feeble efforts to make new life in Christ. Sometimes we feel that maybe we've messed up. The only way we can mess up in evangelism is if we don't say anything. God takes even our trembling and stuttering words, and then he brings beautiful new creation in Christ, if he wills. So take heart in this glorious truth. God is the one that brings about illumination that leads to liberation in Christ. And then secondly, I just want us to see a warning that we shouldn't underestimate or forget about the devil. We see this in this passage. Though we shouldn't fear him, for we are on the side of the one who has crushed him and defeated him, but as Simon helpfully reminded us last Sunday, if we forget about him or underestimate him, he will seek to lull us to sleep and get us to drift from actively seeking to pursue holiness. Therefore, let us seek to fight against him daily by communing with God so that through beholding the Lord's glory, we may be transformed into his likeness. And then thirdly, the second glorious truth. We've been thinking about desiring to be holy, that we would be useful And so I want us to remember the final truth that though we feel sin and do not live perfectly in this pursuit, there was one, the true servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, who who lived the perfect life and died the death that we couldn't die so that he would accomplish salvation for his people. That means justification sanctification, glorification. Through union with him, we receive all the blessings in the heavenly places. And so as we have said earlier, it is our union with him that enables us to pursue holiness. It is the Holy Spirit working within us that allows us to flee and pursue, put to death and put on. And so let us not take our eyes off our life source, Jesus Christ, as we come to these, these verses but let us look to him as the the power, the source that enables us to be holy, that we would be useful for God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the absolute delight that it is to know you. We thank you that you freely chose us in your Son, not because of anything within us, but because of your lavish grace, your steadfast love for us. You are the one who moved towards us, made us alive in your Son. By the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we beheld your glory and rejoiced. And now we pray that as we seek to be holy, that we may be useful for you, that you would be the one empowering our efforts. Would it flow out from you first loving us, therefore we desire to love you by 
faithful and joyful obedience. May we do all things, not for our own glory, but for your glory. May it be you working through us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to stand and sing our next hymn, Not I, But Christ. What a great reminder of how we pursue holiness in this life. Let's stand and sing when the musicians start to play.
now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.